are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. It's another big first for us on the show this week. And though we've had plenty of people on the show who have worked for brands at various points in their career, this is the first time that we have somebody who currently works for a brand talking about their work within that brand in sustainability. Before we get into the details of this episode, we wanted to pause and share a bit about how we decide who to invite on our show. Ultimately, our goal is to increase mutual understanding across the supply chain actors within the fashion industry. Most of the time, this involves talking to suppliers, since we feel that their perspectives are often underrepresented and misunderstood. But achieving our goal also means talking to industry insiders who engage with the sustainable fashion agenda from different positions, like researchers, consultants, non-profits, and of course, sustainability professionals within brands. The litmus test we hold ourselves to when we invite nine suppliers on the show is, can we leverage our platform to talk to our guests about things that they probably wouldn't have a chance to talk about elsewhere? Which brings us to this week's episodes. Gladys Tung is a senior sustainability manager for Chibo Merchandising Hong Kong. Chibo is a German brand selling a wide variety of products across Europe. In this episode, part one of our conversation, we start with Gladys's entry point into the world of sustainability as a social compliance auditor. She shares why her experience as an auditor left her feeling that conventional approaches to sustainability were inadequate and ultimately led her to Chibo. Why does she think Chibo has been so willing to acknowledge the shortcomings of social audits? Why is dialogue the key to a more sustainable future? And what would it take to see more brands following in Chibo's footsteps? In part two of our conversation, which we've also released today, we get into the details. What kind of dialogue does Gladys think supply chain actors should engage in? And how does Chibo strive to leverage its WE program to support dialogue? How did they overcome suppliers' reluctance to participate in the program? We also put some hard questions to Gladys, like how does Chibo ensure alignment between purchasing and sustainability departments? And how do they address suppliers' concerns around price? Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with the GIZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for the people and the environment. Gladi was a speaker on the eighth edition of GIZ Fabric's online seminar series called Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. 
Gladys, thanks for joining us today. Why don't we start with your entry point into the sustainable fashion space and how this ultimately led you to what you're doing now? So how I start my career, well, as a, well, it's a long, well, talking about so many years ago. So I started my career as a social compliance auditor. And at, and at that time, I was full of passion about contributing myself, working on the human rights issues and ethical business, fight for the fairness and justice for workers in developing countries. I kind of doing something about cool and meaningful, like a fresh scratch, um, yeah, lady, a young lady. <laughs> and then I did a lot of uh, audits in many countries like Cambodia, Myanmar, Vietnam, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Mongolia, China, Pakistan, Madagascar, Russia. <laughs> It's really a good experience. And I also have chance to visit um, different factories who produce not only garments, but shoes, knives, ceramic, furniture, fire extinguishers, etc. So um, were you working for an auditing firm or were you working for as an auditor for a brand or? I work uh, in the audit firm. So at the beginning, I feel excited because I carry my passion on behalf of uh, different brands to check their production factory, to see if they are compliant to the local law, are they compliant with the brand's code of conduct, are the workers being treated well, how are they paying properly, are they happy in their factory. However, the more I visit the factory, the more I feel frustrated. And I realized that, yeah, the day I was in the factory, it looks fine. But when I left the factory, it went back to normal. The normal means like on the day of audit, the aisles are clean, are all unblocked, aside so tidy. But when I left the factory, it's all go back to a busy production floor, like debris, trolley everywhere. So I don't see a real change. It sounds like Changes only happen when the auditor is there. So I don't see a long, a, a real change in the factory. But I'm curious, like why you think that was? Yeah, at that time, I completely, um, well, I can't, well, the way that I understand is uh, in order to get the orders from buyers, they need to get passed from the audit. And that's why they make so hard and make all the effort to get passed from the audit. Even many, many, Double maintain the double book, double book for the payroll, and uh, even coaching workers to answer some uh, some questions to the auditors that favor to them, but which is um, different from their reality. Like I think from outside perspective, people are like, "Oh, suppliers are faking the audit data. They're cheating on the test. They're just trying to like do what they need to do to pass the test." And I think some sometimes that's definitely true. But sometimes I also wonder, like, if there's also, if it's maybe, if that story is too simple. I don't think I ever met a factory manager who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I want to do today? I want to exploit my workers and make an unsafe working environment, you know? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly. I don't think people, since they're born, they want to exploit uh, workers. They want to do something bad. I believe everyone wants to do something good. And... uh, and, the, and and that's how I see the pressures. I mean, I feel like they, they are 
they get stuck. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to improve it because something that they cannot only improve it by themselves. Like yes, by health and safety, if you provide a uh, a, a glove to the workers, you uh, you provide to them. Yes, they can wear, but they also I don't want to wear because it's too heavy, not convenient. So there are lots of things behind, and not not just looking at the the issue itself. And that's why I see like um, yeah yeah the issue keep repeating. I mean, it still exists until today. Yeah, and I remember like when I was a factory manager, sometimes I felt very frustrated because I felt like the amount that was in my control was maybe this much, like a small circle. You know, there was only a small circle of things that I could directly control. But during these audits, I was expected to control this much, a much bigger circle. And it was like, I agreed that all of those things in that bigger circle should change, but it was very difficult for me by myself to actually change that. So I want to move a little bit towards what you're doing now, because if I get it right, like you spent this time doing social auditing, initially very motivated about, you know, making sure the world was a better place and gradually got a little bit disillusioned and decided maybe you want to do something a little bit different. Is that right? Yes, Kim. Um, yeah, I still remember the time that why uh, or what made me change to uh, to make the change from an auditor to to a different role in the supply chain. Because when I think back, when I go back to the factory to audit the same factory, I see the, there's no real change. It's just like a drama. It's like, yeah, the whole day is like a drama for me to there. And then I realized that, oh, how about if I move a little bit up to the supply chain? Can that be make a different, make a change, make a difference? And then um, I want to see uh, a different perspective from brands because I see that even if I write a report, I write up order thing and at the end, the factory is still receiving the orders and I don't see any big changes. Of course, some good factory, they do make changes, but some issue, they really can't make a change. Even I go back in, I don't know, a year later or more. So when I uh, see that, okay, let's see what happened if I make a change to work in a brand side, that's um, give me a um, different perspective. And somehow, eventually, I found Chibo because um, the program, the dialogue program that attracted me a lot. Um, before Chibo, I, I work um, for different company. They um, also having their own uh, program um, monitoring their social performance. I mean, social compliance performance of their supply chain. But what give me the lights is the way that Chibo see the issue and how different they want to tackle um, yeah, the social compliance um, topics. Yes, and we wanna talk more because we're also really curious about what makes Chibo different. But before we get into that, um, I'm curious, can you just give a little bit of context about what Chibo is? Um, okay, Chibo is a family-owned company found in 1949 as a coffee roaster in Hamburg, Germany. So we are personally and culturally committed to sustainability and fairness. So we have our strong stand in corporate responsibility that is based on dialogue and empowerment. 
as well as on sustainable production. So Chibo is the world's fourth largest coffee producer and sells non-food products. So we offer unique and weekly changing assortment to our customers. So we sell in German speaking well, but also other European country. So basically we also source quite globally. And quite a variety of products too, right? I mean, yes. I know you said you started in coffee and you said you sell also non-coffee products, but I mean, can you just give some examples of the range of non-coffee products? Yeah, it, yeah. well, whenever you can see anything at your home, just like the cup, the furniture, the kitchenware, the toys, the clothes, lights, everything. So whatever you use at home, you can find it in Chivo's store. And non-food will be my um, working area. Um, I'm based in the Chibo Hong Kong office, um, working for the human rights team in the Go Blow um, corporate responsibility team. So I lead the Hong Kong team, um, the Hong Kong-based CR team, and oversee the human rights activities in China and Southeast Asia. And basically, my job is to make sure the people in our non-food um, have meaningful conversation for impactful changes towards our mutual desired future. So let's talk a little bit more about Chibo, um, because one of the things we thought was really interesting when we talked last time was you, you sort of described a, a shift or a change in the way that Chibo approached social performance in the early to mid 2000s. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um... Well, we, uh, we start um, the company, I mean, the, the Department of uh, Corporate Social Responsibility actually start with a scandal that from an NGO. So um, a group of Bangladeshi workers um, bring holding a banner in front of our Chibo store in Germany. So at that time it's uh, in the mid of 2000. So, um, at that time, it drew a lot of attention to the media and the society. So this case also make us to think about what are we doing? Um, are we uh, really may, able to make changes? And yeah, it really gives us a, a, um, a time for us to think. Um, and after that, um, we start to look at our supply chain. We want to know what we've heard from the Bangladeshi workers, is it a particular case in the country or only happened in particular country or is all over the supply chain? So that's how we start our auditing approach. And this is also um, how our um, department uh, gets uh, established. And after a while, after some years, we, uh, we realized that actually um, auditing reached its limits. So we see that um, auditing can't really solve the problem or the root cause. And also some expert cannot be verified. For example, sexual harassment or discrimination. So, it is time for us to look for opportunities, I mean, different alternatives. And um, by chance that uh, we are able to um, um, take the chance and a 
brave enough to uh, try something new, which is um, based on the experience from the Eastern Europe. Um, from that project, we see that dialogue is working. So uh, we wrote it, we, we tried to buy a pilot project with a uh, small and limited resources. And then we wrote out um, to a bigger scale and that become the V program that I so proud of it. So, so we're gonna come to the WE program and what exactly you mean by this word dialogue in part two of our conversation. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, what do you think makes Chibo different? Why is this a brand that was, you know, able to sort of come to grips with the fact that, or, or able to acknowledge that social audits were not delivering in the ways that the industry hoped, and that it had to do something more? Because a lot of brands haven't still aren't really willing to do that. I mean, I was just working on an article which was about a scandal and that brand just like said, "Hey, we audited these factories, so we'll 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 audit them again, but basically we're we're not responsible." For auditing, why we see is not what well, is still necessary, but what we see auditing is reaching its limits is the the issues is still there. It cannot have a sustainable change. This is what we mean. So that is why we see the dialogue could help. And that's the way out for sustainable change. And again, we'll, we'll come to dialogue in part two of the conversation. But, but do you think the fact that Chibo is privately owned has anything to do with the company's ability to take this position? Or, or what do you think it is that enables this? Um, there's one fact. I mean, yeah, that's a fact that uh, private-owned company have uh, some advantage, no need to follow the, the, yeah, some external rules to report uh, regularly and to trace different KPI like that. And uh, actually what makes uh, Chibol so different, I would say because of the company, they have long-term vision. So and it is also, having the, um, they carry this, the heritage and thoughts to how to pass on to the next generations. So I think that's also um, um, lead us um, have this uh, long-term um, perspective and long-term visions. And um, yeah, and I also looking at um, what makes Chibos um, so special. I would say it's also related to a kind of German culture. <laughs> well, although I'm not German, but based on what I um, experienced uh, the time that I work in Chibo, I see that they, uh, when they face difficult situation or face challenge, they walk into the problem, they walk into the issue and not go around or walk aside. They really work on reality, they face it. And I also see that they really value sustainability. So that's not many company that I've known that integrate the SDG, the um, sustainable development goal into their company goal and Chibo does. Um, and I also see one of the advantage also or the, um, the DNA in Chibo, which is um, they are 
so brave and open to try to try new things. So I would say an innovative ways of working. So what do you think it would take to get more more brands behaving like Chibo? Is there any hope for that? Well, yes. And um, yeah, it also depends on the people like um, and the alternatives. If there are platform for for different company who, who share the same views, share the same goals, we are happy to get together. And um, yeah, and the program, I mean, the V program that I'm so proud of also expanding. So we are happy to, to bring them um, on board with us to work on the issues. So I really wish, I mean, that's a dream that one day, um, yeah, brands can work together to make the industry change and for a better um, better life for people working in, in the supply chain. Okay, last question before we get into part two and the details of the WE program and what you mean by dialogue. As you know, we've had mostly suppliers on this show. So, and one of the things we hear from them often is what they wish brands would do differently when it comes to supply chain relationships. And so I think it's nice to take a moment and flip the question. And from your side as a brand, what do you wish that suppliers might do differently in terms of how they engage with supply chain relationships and with brands specifically? Well, thank you for asking these questions because you already make me interested about what they are talking about. <laughs> Requesting brand to do sounds differently. Um, so I uh, I wish suppliers um, can be can have a um, um, honest and courageous conversation with brands for impactful changes, at least as a first step, and then to connect with what uh, Chibo is doing uh, in terms of the uh, industrial wide changes and. Uh, national-wide changes on the legislation, the act, uh, initiatives. I, um, yeah, we are asking our suppliers to share the commitment to join us to join the, in the initiative um, on the act uh, purchasing practices commitment. And act here stands for a project called Action Collaboration Transformation, and we'll get into a little bit more detail about what that project is also in part two of this conversation. And we are also asking um, our suppliers um, to talk and have dialogue in their own country regarding the social security system. So why I'm talking about this, um, in the COVID situation or the crisis that we face um, in this year due to the COVID, we see that um, the manufacturing, um, the manufacturer, are highly relied on the business from brands. And who is suffering actually is the workers. They don't have the social security. They lost the job, they lost the job and they have no income and whole family is suffering. So we wish that um, the suppliers can also share uh, this um, um, to, to have dialogue in their own country and brands will also share our parts. So. Currently, we in some of the conversation we see that um, some some of the, the the actors are finger pointing to each other, but we seldom 
really come together to talk about the issue. We take our shares to work on the issues. So this is my um, my wish um, to the suppliers. Do, do you mean having suppliers engage more with their governments at the national level about creating social security programs or providing it themselves or both? Both. It's an interesting point because I think like when I was a factory manager, it was something that was always on my mind was that like my employees had no safety net. It's hard for people. I think it's hard for people to imagine what that is. You know, that you have people on your staff who are earning $250 a month and that's it. If that's gone, it's gone. There's nothing, there's nothing there to, to catch them. And that's really like um, an enormous responsibility because you you can't fall back on on the government to at least in in Cambodia where we were like the government was was you know couldn't really be relied on to to provide that safety net um, but it comes back to some of these other issues we talked about also around price around purchasing practices and what it would take you know how different stakeholders i think how I think requiring secure livelihoods requires different stakeholders coming together and, and having, you know, a, a frank conversation about it. I found it's very interesting. This is really a lot of food for thoughts that uh, we talk about different stakeholders needs to take their, their own responsibilities into building up a safely livelihood. Yeah, I really wish that people come to your podcast can bring a meaningful conversation and and impactful changes. And on that call for more meaningful dialogue, we're going to close this episode and move on to part two when we're going to get into exactly what you mean by dialogue and tell us a bit about the WE program. So be sure to tune in for part two, which we've also released today. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.